0: Our scripture lessons this morning remind us of the mystery of God. I don't mean because there's some hidden revelation in them, or because it's particularly hard to understand what they're saying. It's that they reveal clearly a God so different from what makes sense to me. I understand what the readings are saying about God. I find it hard to understand the God that they are about. As regards God's grace and mercy, I mean. Reading our first lesson from the book of Jeremiah last week, I came across this cheery passage in which Jeremiah, speaking of the Lord, says, For my people are foolish, they do not know me, they are stupid children, they have no understanding, they are skilled in doing evil, but they do not know how to do good. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void into the heavens, and they had no light. Feel like, beam me up, Scotty, there's no worthwhile life left here. Through that passage, I thought, if I were God, I'd know what to do. I'd say there is no end of evil in the world. Better abandon that project and start over. Having done a recon mission to my fallen world, I would have said, this place is so far gone that it is not worth saving. Jeremiah leaves no doubt. That God is angry with his people for their sin and their disregard for him. But instead of making a clean job of it and cutting bait, tossing the earth into a black hole and starting over, God doubled down on creation and entered it to save it. Instead of destroying us, he became one of us to bear our sins to the cross and to reconcile us to himself. Instead of shunning sinners, Jesus eats with them and forgives them. I just don't get people like that. That's what I mean about the mystery of God. When it comes to dealing with the flawed, the wayward, and the chronically disobedient and rebellious... I prefer clean, simple solutions like annihilation, or deleting and starting over, or simply judgment and abandonment. No point in throwing good money after bad, after all. Considering our gospel lesson from Luke 15... Do you know what I'd do if I lost a sheep or a coin? Far from running after it or sweeping the house in search of it, I'd just wait for it to turn up. And if it didn't, I'd take it as a tax (laughs) write-off. Consider then the Apostle Paul, also known as Saul, who describes himself in our epistle lesson as formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. We know from the book of Acts that Saul stood by at the stoning of Stephen the martyr and approved of it. If I were God, the next chapter of Acts would be about the stoning of Saul. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Instead, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verses 13 and 14, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you know the quote in which Mark Twain says, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me? It's the parts that I do understand. This is one of those parts. For me and other people who share the attitude of the prophet Jonah and Inspector Javert towards sinners, Namely, I'd like a box seat to watch when they get what's coming to them. God's grace unsettles naturally unmerciful people like me and Jonah and Javert. We struggle to fathom where it comes from, that mercy, and why it is directed to sinners like us and the Apostle Paul. It just feels all wrong, like the world has stopped making sense. Where is the justice in the redemption of sinners? Thanks be to God that God is not like me, but is instead slow to anger, rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Instead of destroying us, God came to free and save us from sin and death that estranged us from him, that we might have everlasting life with him, free of guilt and shame. In our gospel lesson, Jesus fraternizes with notorious sinners, tax collectors, and others regarded as scoundrels for their corruption, collaboration with the Romans, and exploitation of their countrymen. The religious leaders at Jesus' time were scandalized that Jesus would break bread with them. At the sight of our sin, that self-inflicted mortal wound, God did not abandon us to our fate but instead took our sin on himself in the person of Jesus Christ, taking on our humanity, our suffering, and dying as we do. In his death, Jesus put to death our sins. We who are baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection have received God's righteousness in exchange for our sin and everlasting life with God in exchange for our mortality. These are not rewards for our good behavior, but gifts of God despite our sin. If you're new in the area and don't know if you really belong here at Messiah, let me tell you why I'm here. In the words of our second lesson taken from 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And even though this attitude of God toward us perplexes me, I'm grateful for it. For like the Apostle Paul, a sinner is what I am and what we all are. And Jesus is the one who can and will save us from our sin. What very good news that is, and has been from every generation since Paul wrote those words to Timothy, reflecting on his own history Again, as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, he must have wanted to disappear. Paul told Timothy that he had received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. But in many cases, we sin not out of ignorance, but out of convenience, contempt, or carnality, knowing full well that it's wrong. The Apostle Paul had a lot in his past to be ashamed of. And he was acutely alive to that fact. But he was even more alive to the fact that his sin and his shame were crucified with Christ. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the sin and the shame remained dead in his tomb. Paul had been forgiven a massive, crippling debt, the magnitude of which is reflected in his tenacious dedication to the spread of the good news of God's grace toward us in the gift of Jesus Christ. That grace fueled the afterburner zeal with which Paul conducted his missionary journeys around the Mediterranean Sea. Now... It's important to make clear that there is all the difference in the world between the true gospel of sin and grace and false gospels that simply deny or minimize sin and its seriousness. Without sin, there is nothing to be saved from, no need for a savior or for salvation. Paul's frank admission of his sin flies in the face of any who would deny their sin, or use psychology to excuse sin or explain it away, or claim that no one can judge them. Fortunately, our judge is also our savior, who loves us and sacrificed himself, taking on our sin and its penalty. Like a shepherd who loves his sheep, he seeks us out to restore us to his flock. And unlike Jonah getting upset, over the repentance of the people of Nineveh, God rejoices in our repentance. God's grace, does God's grace obviate our need for moral guidance, for the disciplines of Christian discipleship, for resisting temptation, or striving for holiness and obedience? Of course not, as Paul says in Romans 6, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But during our sojourn through our fallen world, sin still plagues us. And no amount of striving on our part can cause us to free, or by which we can free us, free ourselves from our sin. Only God's grace, only God's grace is sufficient. If this seems like an old and well-worn message, that's because it is. And for the likes of sinners like us, it can't be well-worn enough. We need to continue in God's grace, not just at the moment of our baptism, but every day as we put on our baptism with our clothes. We need to continue in God's grace because we continue to sin. We continue to receive God's grace as we receive Christ in his word and sacraments. Some of you know that I offer a Welcome to Messiah class each year to introduce the congregation to potential new members. One, our next one will begin on October 9th, which you can read about in today's bulletin. Current members attend to as a resource for the new folks and to refresh their own memory of what we believe and why we do things the way we do. A few years ago we began the class as usual by introducing ourselves and saying what we consider important in a congregation. I was eager to tell the new people about the activities and events in which they could participate in addition to the worship services to build community and to support one another. And those are important events and activities, but as we went around the room, one of our longtime members who is here today says, what keeps me coming back is the forgiveness of sins. Wow. At that moment, I felt simultaneously a sense of pride that we still proclaim the forgiveness of sins and a big sense of silliness that I had failed to mention it myself. As I was reminded that day, we should not be embarrassed by repeating our proclamation both of our sin and of God's grace. It's what we're here to do. When we walk into the grocery store, are we disappointed to find that for yet another week, They're carrying the food that we need, expect, and enjoy. Do we wish that they would stop carrying what we've always bought and branch out into car parts and upholstery? Speaking for myself, the day I walk into ShopRite and they've dispensed with pickled herring in favor of lawn gnomes, that's the day I remind the manager of his job and beg him to stick to it. Here at Messiah, sin and grace, judgment and forgiveness, law and gospel, word and sacrament, reconciliation and freedom are our core competencies, the staples that we are privileged and proud to offer to everyone who will receive them week in and week out. Is that all that we talk about? Of course not. But as your pastor, my job is to stick to the church's proclamation. Not to use this pulpit to try out my own ideas or to use scripture as a springboard to speak on the latest trends in fashion or politics or airline loyalty programs, which I know a lot about, by the way. Fascinating as those discussions may be. Today's readings remind us of why we're here. If we leave here remembering anything of today's service, I hope it is the image of Paul so ashamed of his past as to be unable to live with himself and God's grace overflowing to him like someone sitting under a waterfall. To him who once persecuted the church, washing away his sin, his guilt, and his shame. God's grace that availed for Paul is for us too. And God invites us back week after week to stand under the cataract of his grace, pouring over us. Thanks be to God for his continuing Constant gift of grace, his unmerited favor toward us, and his forgiveness of our sins. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, it was, it is, and it will continue to be, the very best news in the world.